So, Brad, I got to tell you one of the most amazing stories from my marriage. Are you ready for? And this is the most on brand. <laughs> oh, I'm always, I'm always here for those stories. Yeah. This is the most on brand story I've ever uh, told you. I think probably because uh, it involves cake and Dave Kellett. There's two things that go <laughs> hand in hand. So I marry my beautiful wife. I luckily it was 18 years ago yesterday. I married my beautiful Aww. wife, uh, and uh, as you do apparently. There was a chunk of the cake left over. The top section of a three-tiered cake was was oh, yeah. a set aside to save, right? And so they saran, they uh, I don't know what they did, saran wrapped it or tinfoiled it. They tinfoiled it. And by the time we got back from our honeymoon, it was sitting in the freezer, right? Yeah. And so we're living in our in our little one-bedroom tiny studio apartment in Los Angeles. And anytime she's working late at work or I come home from a jog or something, I'm like, ooh, look at that wedding cake up in the freezer. And I got a little fork out and I would have a bite of it, right? And I'm have, I have another bite and that kind of thing. And slowly, over the course of the year, I've eaten the entire top of the wedding cake, right? The, uh-huh. there's, there's, there's maybe a third of a fist left of cake. That's all that's left of this, of this once 12 to 15 inch cake topper, right, from our wedding. Yeah. And then it, a year rolls around. It's our one year anniversary. And she goes, oh, hooray. Now we can do the tradition where we get out the cake and we eat it. And I go, wait, what? What, what oh, tradition? No. And she goes, that's why we save the top of the cake. The, you eat it at the one-year mark. And I go, oh, don't look in the freezer. And she's like, what happened? Who ate oh. this cake? And I was like, I did slowly over the course of a whole year. It was amazing. Because, <laughs> you know, anytime you don't have Oreos in the house or you're like, oh, yeah. I love some ice cream. Oh, we're out of ice cream. Yeah, well, I'll just eat the wedding cake. I'll eat some I'll of that wedding cake. That's fine. One bite of wedding cake. No one's going to miss it. Right. And it's frozen wedding cake. You're thinking like, oh, I'm not stealing from anyone. It's my own wedding cake. This is yeah. fine. And oh boy, did I get into the into the into the thick of it by eating that oh, cake over there. And she's no. like, no, I was saving it for the tradition. For the... Oh didn't boy, you, didn't it even cross your mind to tell her that you'll go get it and then go and get like a replacement wedding cake? No, well, a no, it didn't even occur to me. And b. <laughs> occurred to me <laughs> how do you even how do you even going about ordering uh someone making a match to just the top of your wedding cake like how how would i go into a beggar hey so listen uh i'm bad at self-control and i need to order an entire top of a wedding cake <laughs> you so, all of a sudden find yourself in a sitcom premise <laughs> yeah oh my god it was absolutely a sitcom premise like ah, listen i got maybe 50 bucks on me can you make just the top of a wedding cake that yeah. looks like this photo from this picture of this wedding they're the same that they got the cake they got white icing that's it's kind of flowery and stuff they got the plastic uh, people up top it's yeah what more do you need (laughs) would she have really noticed if you put a different one up there anyway i like to think that i trained my uh, (laughs) i like to think that i trained my wife for everything she could expect for me in the next 18 years of marriage which is like if you leave sugar around the house i'm gonna eat it so just fyi (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that candy that you got for the kids that you thought you had hidden from me, I found it when I was doing laundry, and I'm going to eat it. That's that's the problem. And now I'm eating all these Snickers. It's November 1st. Where's the Halloween candy? Don't ask. <laughs> Don't ask. Dad had some issues, and he ate some of that candy. Anyway, very on-brand story for Dave Kellett. And on that note, my friends, I'm going to say hello, everybody, and welcome to Comic Lab, the show about making comics. And making a living from comics. I'm Brad Geiger, editor of webcomics.com and cartoonist of Evil Inc. And I'm his cake-eating friend, Dave Kellett, cartoonist (laughs) of Drive and Sheldon and co-director of Stripped. And this week's hour of comics advice is made possible by your support at patreon.com slash comic lab. And Dave, Dave, 
Let's talk comics. And actually, let's ask a question about comics. <laughs> I've been, I, there's something that's troubling me. And I, I've been meaning to ask you for weeks now. Okay. And you're actually the only person I can ask this without feeling weird. Okay. Uh, all right. Is this the kind of thing where I need to face you and hold your hands while you look into my eyes and ask the question? <laughs> kind of do. Okay. It's really troubling me. So I've been on Instagram, and and as you know, I've got a love hate relationship with Instagram. But something happens on Instagram that has me flummoxed, and I I sincerely don't understand it. Okay. Okay. Why do people tag me in their Instagram posts? And and what I mean is. When when you when they tag me in a post, I get a message that says so and so has posted a picture of Brad Geiger, and then I go over and look, and it's like uh, an announcement for their Kickstarter, or it's for their their uh, a comic that has nothing to do with me. It's just their comic, but they tagged me. Why are why are they saying that that's a picture of me? Okay, well, first of all, I want as I'm sitting here facing you, holding your hands, I'm going to remind you, Grandpa, to turn on your hearing aid. This is going to be. I'm going to. I need to talk to you, and I don't want to yell. So turn, I'm, I'm being totally serious. This thing happens to me, and I get ready to block people because I get so angry about it. So, okay, the short version is my spidey sense is that this is someone who's trying to bring your attention to whatever their project or comic or thing is, and they think by tagging you, you're going to go over and look at it and go, oh, this is great, I should share this myself, and somehow it's going to make their way into it. What they're doing, and they're probably young, What's what they're really doing is just annoying Brad Geiger, because uh, it's an, uh, Instagram does not have a great way of sharing, and so sometimes tagging people into something either in the post itself or in the comments, is the only way to bring their attention to it. But if they are doing it willy-nilly or if they are doing it to bring Brad Geiger's eyes to their project, that's annoying. Uh, let them know that you can they can stop uh, tagging you because this is not 1998 and you don't do things like that. And, uh, and I think that'll be that. So that's my next question. This isn't something that I should be doing. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't do it if I were you. Listen, the way I, unless oh, you can do this kind of thing, you see a comic that you're like, oh, my God, you know who would appreciate that? Dave Kellett. And you don't want right. to, like, text me. So you can just tag me in the comics and just say, Dave Kellett, you got you to gotta read this comic. And I'll know to go right. look over now, it. I've seen that before. That yeah, and that's sense. more of a friendly sharing thing. Whereas yeah. It sounds like the thing that you're describing is someone who's basically spamming you, trying to get you to uh, promote their work or piece. Yeah. Is it the same cartoonist or is it like multiple people are doing this? This is happening. Uh, there's one person that does it uh, about like every other month uh, for, for many months now. <laughs> well, you know what? It's some just... people I some people just don't know decorum until it's kindly pointed out to them. I would just drop them a message on Instagram and say like, hey, stop tagging me and stuff. That's yeah. uh, you're just spamming me at this point. Um, yeah, that's that's. That's what I kind of thought, but it was one of those things that just, it, it annoys me so much. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe this is just like some internet culture that I'm not aware of. Yeah, no, I, I think more than anything else, this is a young person who themselves is not aware that they are spamming. And if anything, they're hurting their point and hurting their cause by just making you angry at them. So uh, right. I think just dropping them a note and saying, hey, uh, listen, we all figured out spam 10 years ago. Let's try not to do that. Uh, that kind of thing. Very good. Well, now that you straighten me out on that, uh, maybe you can straighten me out on this because I've got another topic I want to pitch to you. You ready for this? All right, let's hear it. All right. So here's the thing. I've been seeing this come up uh, in the last couple of months, uh, not only uh, in my own uh, world, my old comics, but I, I see some people talking about this on social media. They're talking about it on webcomics.com. 
And uh, I wanted to see what you thought about it because I've got I've got some real definite thoughts on it. Uh, so here it is. So you're, you, you've got your Patreon going. You're doing fine. You're doing whatever. And then somebody comes up and says, oh, hey, I don't want to support you on Patreon. Would you start uh, an account at this other place, XYZ? whether it's Ko-Fi or whether they want you to start a PayPal or whatever, right? And there's been a number of upstarts based on Patreon's success. Uh, The question is, do you do it? Do I diversify or do I duplicate my efforts on another platform, right? Yeah. And so I think this is a great question. This is also a question that can be applied to Kickstarter. Do you, at the same time you're kickstarting a book, do you also do it on Indiegogo or do you also do it on GoFundMe? Right. Uh, And I think, Brad, that you will, will join me wholeheartedly in saying, no, the better way to go is to focus your efforts on the industry leader, whatever that may be. And in this case, it's Patreon for distributed returning crowdfunding and it's Kickstarter for uh, single-use crowdfunding. Uh, I think the better thing is to focus all your guns, all your attention, all your social media comments and marketing and all your blog posts towards one spot. Um, you will get less confusion. You'll get a stronger marketing message. And I think in general, you will look like someone who is focused and, and ready to work. What do you think, Brad? I, uh, well, I agree. And, and actually, in your run-up, you said the two magic words, diversifying and duplication. And I think what happens when a lot of people look at this, they think, oh, I'll open up uh, another account with another crowdfunding platform because what the heck, uh, I might as well, right? And, and, and they think about it as their, that, in fact, I've seen people talk about diversifying their crowdfunding, like they're diversifying a stock portfolio. And, they th- and I think they use that word because it makes it sound like, or they, may, they might be trying to talk themselves into the fact that they're making a smart decision, right? I'm diversifying. I was the first thing they tell you to do with stocks, diversify your portfolio. Uh, <laughs> I don't even have a portfolio to diversify. And I know this, uh, but you're not diversifying. You're really not. And the thing is what you're doing is you're duplicating your efforts. And if you really, oh, so let's take that idea and drill down on it. Okay. okay. Yep. Is there, what's the big deal with duplicating your efforts? Right. Guys, so you can take a look at this from somebody's standpoint as a creator saying, well, listen, I've got this person saying that they would like to support me on uh, Ko-Fi instead of Patreon. Why don't I just set up a Ko-Fi? Right, right, right. Great. So let's say you do that. Let's 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 take that hypothetical. Now you've got every time you post work that's uh, for your crowdfunding backers, instead of posting it on one place, you're posting it on two. And if you really want to do this right, if you've got any kind of backlog at all, you've got to to be in good standing with your Ko-Fi people. You've got to take all that old Patreon content from your archive and upload that on Ko-Fi. So the two things are kind of in the same range, right? You're you're not favoring one over another. Uh, But even if you don't do that, every time going forward, you're posting in two different places. And that's going to add up. But it's just a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there. Big deal, right? Well, now when anybody asks a question, you've got twice as many questions that you've got to answer. You've got a person that, that doesn't quite understand Patreon. You've got to walk them through it. Now you've got a person that doesn't understand Ko-Fi. You've got to walk them through certain things. You've got twice as many 
questions coming in. You've got twice as many places you've got to engage readers. You've got to comment here. You've got to comment there. You've got to constantly be looking in both places or responding uh, to notifications in both places. Uh, now it comes time at the end of the month to fulfill rewards. You got to go fulfill rewards over here and you got to go fulfill rewards over there. And all of this duplication of effort of minutes here, minutes there, minutes here is going to turn into hours. And those are hours that you should be working on comics. So should you add another crowdfunding platform? For me personally, it's no. Uh, I don't see the reason. Now, let's say I've got a problem with Patreon for whatever reason. I don't like Patreon. Boo, Patreon. Uh, starting up another crowdfunding platform, if you are uh, assured that you're going to do as well on that platform that you you would have done on Patreon, and let's face it, Patreon is kind of the 800-pound gorilla in this regard. They've got the market share. They've got a whole lot of audience wrapped up. You've got a whole lot of people who already have Patreon accounts that are going to think nothing of just adding you because they're already subscribed. Or, or exactly. They're already... Exactly. They're like Facebook network effect eight years ago. Like once is, you know, yes. once you have a, a critical mass, it's so much easier to work on that platform. Yeah. yeah keep going. In Sorry. other words, if you're, if you've got somebody who's thinking about supporting you, they don't have to say, oh, if I, if I do that, then I've got to sign up and put my credit card number into right. a whole nother right. platform. Absolutely. I'm already signed up on Patreon. So, but, but okay. If you want to go to another place that's not Patreon, that's your choice. And you get you have the freedom to make that choice. And you uh, have the freedom to deal with the consequences of making that choice. If that's a good choice for you, fantastic. If, that, if you suffer uh, negative consequences because uh, of all the things that we just mentioned, well, then that's part of it too. But you get to make that choice. And, and you get to put all of your energy behind that choice, and that's perfectly fine. I'm not saying that you should be on Patreon. I'm not saying you got to be on Patreon. Uh, that's completely up to you. What I am saying, however, is that if you start to uh, – what happens, and, and Dave, you'll, you'll recognize this immediately. So let's say you're on Patreon, and somebody says, I'd, ra I'd rather support you on Ko-Fi. Great. So you go – you make the announcement to your readers. Hey, everybody, if you don't want to support me on Patreon, now there's a second place that you can support me on, and it's called Ko-Fi, and here's where it is. And you know the first comment you're going to get from a reader, <laughs> and that comment is... Oh, wait, does I don't like Ko-Fi or Patreon. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather you set up a PayPal button. And yeah. now you got a deal. Now you've already shown a willingness to start a, a second crowdfunding platform. Now you got somebody, and as soon as he, he brings it up, somebody else is going to say, Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather uh, buy me a coffee.com uh, and this one.com and that one.com. Now, how do you tell those other people no? When you've already showed a willingness to open up this whole nother crowdfunding platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, uh, even behind all of that, when when Brad makes that social media announcement, here's what else is going to happen. You're going to get a bunch of confused people going, wait, so does this mean you're not on Patreon anymore? Oh, yeah. You're going to get that. And so really what you're going to do, and this was one of my earlier points, is that you're just marketing-wise, you're going to muddy the waters. And you can't assume that people are on, as, uh, on, on top of your business as much as you are. 
So you've got to make it clear and driving all the traffic from Instagram, from Facebook, from Twitter, from your site, from your blog, from your Tumblr, all to one location where you can gather funds is so much easier than saying, okay, all you people at all these different social media places, you can whack me on Ko-Fi, buy me a coffee, Patreon, bippity, boppity, Bitcoin, PayPal, whatever. <laughs> and and they're going, well, wait, what? What? It just sound, it also a little bit sounds like crazy talk. It's like when someone, uh, I don't know, Brad, if you ever look at the ever-growing list of Bitcoin competitors where you're like, who yes. is using it? What yes. is this nonsense? And uh, it just, it starts to sound a little bit like madness. And there's four crazy guys in a room that are only using that uh, that Bitcoin alternative. And uh, anyway, I think you want to yeah. focus your, to Brad's point, it, it's, it's both uh, stronger from a network effect. It's stronger from a marketing perspective. It's stronger from a communication point. So keep, uh, keep your efforts focused on uh, whatever the 800 pound gorilla is in that uh, fundraising sphere. And then if you don't like the 800 pound gorilla, just keep it with one. So if you don't like Patreon, go with Ko-Fi, even though the name right. Ko-Fi sounds like a credit union for corn farmers from uh, 2001. <laughs> I never understood Ko-Fi. Was that supposed to be kind of like Wi-Fi? What does the K-O stand for? I think it's supposed to be like co-financing, like we're doing this together. Cooperative financing. Oh my goodness. But of course they have to use a K because spelling things properly is is passe. Yeah, because it's the internet. Wow. But honest to God, it just sounds like a weird credit union. Hi, thanks for coming into Ko-Fi. Are you part of the teacher's union? Okay, you can sign right up. Okay, welcome to Ko-Fi. Ding, ding. Uh, as you walk in. Anyway. <laughs> oh my gosh, she has, she's got a bell too? She's... But, uh, just on the door. Ding, ding, as you walk in. Hi, welcome to Ko-Fi. It's just the five of us. Uh, we're the teacher's union, banking, credit union. Um, so, <laughs> But it's just a shitty name. I'm, uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, not, not a great name. I'm not. No. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. I think we put that one to bed, don't you think? Uh, for for today. Although I do like the fact that you add a third D because I talked about diversifying and duplicated, and then you added diluting, where you're diluting your social media message. And now we've got the three Ds of crowdfunding decision making, and I love that kind of ah, stuff. Ah, Brad, so, Brad loves a trio. You. He loves yes. him a trio. We got the three C's and the three D's. I love trios and initials. We got the three C's of social media, the three D's of crowdfunding decisions. This is great. Now we move on to E. All right. Let's see if we can figure out an E. All right. So here's our next question, Brad. This comes from uh, Patreon backer Chris Halbuck. Uh, and you know Chris from Maximumble and Minimumble. He said, oh, uh, yes. Dave and Brad, in a previous episode, you talked about the dangers of success at all costs. What are your thoughts on the opposite problem of cartoonists waiting for success to come find them? I know some cartoonists that do good work, but don't want to do anything past posting the comic. They don't want a Patreon or a merch store or even that uh, federal credit union for corn farmers <laughs> called Ko-Fi. Yeah, that's not his words. That's me. But they lament still having to work a day job and are frustrated that success hasn't been magically bestowed upon them yet. Brad, this could also be extended to a million uh, cartoonists that we know that are in traditional publishing that are either in syndication <laughs> or uh, working for a trade book or a comic book yeah. shop type floppy. Uh, not wanting to go above and beyond just being an artist. Brad, what do you say to those cartoonists? Oh, I say thank you because holy cats, is it ever tough to make a living as a cartoonist today? And if you were competing with me, 
uh, I'd be it'd be tougher yet. And I'm so glad you're taking yourself out of the running because <laughs> I've only got so much talent <laughs> and it ain't much. So thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, no, I what what Chris is pointing out is very simple, and that is we talked about one thing: success at all costs. And he's saying there is a a, a place you can bury the needle on the other side of the scale. And say, yeah, well, you can you can do you know success at no cost <laughs> or whatever the opposite would be. And yeah, he's absolutely right. And and it is a danger. The I think as in all things, uh, the best place is in the middle it, it, with a little healthy moderation. But uh, am I gonna get very upset over someone who just wants to be an artist and doesn't want to deal with the business stuff and and couldn't imagine uh, running their own Patreon because they don't like uh, asking for money and all this other stuff. Am I, am I going to lose sleep over that? Nah. <laughs> they, they, their, their path is their own to choose. I don't have to live with their consequences. They don't have to live with mine. I'm perfectly happy they walked down that path. That's that's okay. I can I can offer them advice. That's why I do this show. <laughs> I can I can throw some ideas out there. I can share some opinions. Uh, whether they're whether you agree with them or whether they end up being right or wrong is is all yet to be seen. But uh, but am I going to lose lose sleep over that person? Nah. Nah, that's you. You walk your path. Okay. Well, I, I, in broad strokes, I agree with you. But here's where uh, the piss and vinegar gets built up in me a little bit. I do get angry with those cartoonists, uh, and I think, <laughs> I think a little part of you gets angry with them too because they have the chops. They are cartoonists of of on par excellence. They are their writing is great. Their their art is great. They have what it takes to make it. They just wish that a market existed that uh, was 1965 newspapers and comic strips or uh, 1975 comic book stores. That's what they wish still existed so that they could pass off their work to some magical editor or publisher to take it and make a career. But that doesn't exist for so many people anymore. And for an increasing right. number of people, it's uh, it's going away from them. They have had it, but the, now the comic book shops are dying, or now uh, traditional publishers aren't offering advances like they were, or now syndicates can't bring in a, a workable salary like they could 30 years ago. And I get pissed because you have to live in the world uh, of today, and you can't pine for a day that no longer is here. And now cartoonists have to have an entrepreneurial hat on. And if they don't, two things are going to happen, and this is why I get pissed. Path number yeah. one, they never get to be a cartoonist. They have to take that accounting job or that job at a bakery, or they have to, or they have to be, uh, you know, a, a junior librarian, and it's an okay life, and they live. But then they die six years later, never having been the cartoonist they could have been, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, that's path number one. Path number two is they like I don't want to deal with the business, fingers in the ear, and then they go work for a publisher that that takes the vast bulk of the income the from the gross of the sale of that book and that leaves them with a tiny little author's net at the end of it. And then yeah. what we're going to hear from them 30 years from now, Brad, is, hey, everybody, I'm on GoFundMe because I have a liver problem <laughs> and I have no savings because I lived hand-to-mouth, frankly, uh, yeah. working for a publisher my whole life. And, oh, shit, how did this happen? I was a great Silver Age cartoonist. Oh, anyway, GoFundMe. <laughs> Let's get me a liver. Um, and I get pissed because... You know the answer is to be an entrepreneurial cartoonist and to take control of your yeah. own business and to own it and to run it. And I think, Brad, secretly you feel that way too. And you get angry with these cartoonists. Oh, well, listen, you you know me. I get angry at the drop of a hat. But listen, <laughs> there's one thing that doing webcomics.com for almost 10 years now has done for me. And that is I've uh, 
kind of adopted a little bit of a Zen attitude uh, to, to rein those feelings in. And that is kind of like I said uh, in my, uh, in my uh, part of the speech there is, is I can offer opinions. I can offer advice. That's why I do webcomics.com. That's why I did the webcomics handbook. That's why I do comic lab. I, I, I think it's important. That's why I teach uh, in, in art schools. I think it's important to put this information out there. But when it comes down to twisting somebody's arm and making them listen to me as much as I want to, uh, I, I, I have to remind myself. And, I, and this happens on social media when I see pushback to uh, ideas that I'm putting out there. Uh, I have to remind myself that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And, and that's okay. You got it. At some point, you've got to say that's okay. Yeah. No, listen, I'm sighing audibly because you are calming me down and reminding me that we as fellow artists can't (laughs) want success for their career more than they want it. Right. Right. Yeah, you're right. Now, what has happened that we've changed roles? Usually this is you talking me off the ledge. What's happening that I'm, (laughs) you know, Dave, when you're in a situation when you say, you know, Brad was the calm one today, you know that (laughs) something's wrong. No, listen, Brad, you're always a, you're like a soothing bomb that I just want to rub on my skin. That's, you're like a. I'm like a soothing bomb. (laughs) No, I, uh, it is, it is funny how we change roles sometimes, but uh, I. I just feel like in a way it's kind of like with our kids that we know that they are going to have to learn how to code. Like you can't, you can't raise a kid and be like, Nope, they don't need to code. They don't need to know how computers run. Like that generation needs to know how to code. And if they don't learn it right now, they're going to learn it in college. And if they don't learn in college, they're going to learn it when they first get out. Somehow they have to, you know, what I'm saying is, uh, every generation has new challenges and you have to rise to those challenges. And for cartoonists now, it's the absolute diminishment of mass market distribution for comics, uh, aside from uh, trade books like Raina Telgemeier and Dave Pilkey with uh, Dogman, it's that kind of stuff. And that you have to, there's so many career possibilities though for cartoonists. And what an amazing time to be alive and to be a cartoonist and to have a completely independent uh, career path. Uh, you oh my know, gosh, yes. People, the hate Ashbury cartoonists would have killed for this if it had existed uh, back then, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, instead, they had to eat Cheerios out of their bong in, uh, as they were sleeping <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a, you know, a friend's carpet in San Francisco. Um, but the, the idea that you can have no editor, no publisher, no printer, and be making sixty dollars to $250,000 a year as a cartoonist with Patreon and Kickstarter and other resources... Uh, right. That's amazing, and I'm I'm boggled when people don't want to put on their their business hat and make that happen, or just put a little effort in, you know. But, right. but then you, again, you know, it, it's <laughs> you can't want it for them, and and frankly, if they it, if they wanted it badly enough, they'd open up their eyes and look around, because as you noted, the economic system that they are relying upon or they are wishing for hasn't existed for. Th- 20, 30, arguably 40 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> this this hasn't been a, a healthy uh, industry uh, for a long time. And, and the writing has been on the wall very clearly. Uh, so you can't, you, you can't go over and force their eyes open and, you know, and, and that's, that's okay. The other, the other reason that I, I try not to get too upset is that it's like, well, you know what? Uh, I've, I've offered a different way to do it. They insist on walking this path. 
Let's watch what they do. Maybe they maybe they do something that I can learn from. Maybe right. they're walking a different path and they stumble upon something or they discover something or they innovate something that is worth copying. So, so see your, what happens. Your answer then to Chris, because Chris says they don't want a Patreon or a merch store or even a Ko-Fi, but they lament still having to work a day job and are frustrated that the success hasn't been magically bestowed upon them yet. So your answer to that is there's only so much you can do as a fellow artist. Is that the... All you can do yeah, is provide yeah, that, the tool. You know what? That's exactly what my answer is. Okay. I Listen, I'm not arguing with you. I think that's a fair response. Uh, I think uh, my hackles can be raised all I want, but it is not going to change their path. Uh, all we can do as fellow artists is open the door. Other people have to walk through it, right? Yeah, yeah. And and let's, let's face it. I mean, not, not to pat us on the back too much, but uh, not for nothing. Who, uh, there's very few people that have done as much for sharing and spreading information on this topic as you and I. Uh, the only other person that comes to mind immediately is Spike Trotman, who does an amazing amount of information dissemination on social media and, and podcasts and stuff. Uh, uh, but after that, the list kind of tends to drop down a little bit. Right? I love you, you I can, love this egotistical. You can feel confident that you've done your part. Yeah. No, we definitely have. I I, I appreciate this egotistical moment though of uh of uh <laughs> Well, you've been listening to Brad and Dave tell you how great Brad and Dave are. Yes. It's that game that everybody loves, Brad and Dave, among the most humanitarian cartoonists out there. Brad, tell everybody what they've won. <laughs> they've won yet another trip inside my brain because this is what goes on every day. How great I am. <laughs> All right, you get a everybody. copy of the home game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brad. Well, I'm going to turn us to our uh, next question uh, from Steve Barry. Steve's one of our uh, $5 backers on patreon.com slash comic lab. And Stephen asks, Dave and Brad, how do you manage multiple projects? So, Brad, you have, uh, oh, God, at the time, uh, five projects, six <laughs> projects going. <laughs> Uh, you have Evil Inc., you have Evil Inc. After Dark, you have webcomics.com. Right. Uh, at any given time, you have a smaller project on that on that to-do list. What else am I forgetting? You have uh, you always are great at this. <laughs> well, Evil Inc., After Dark, webcomics.com, Comic Lab. <laughs> oh, forgot. right. Yeah, that podcast thing you do. <laughs> yeah, that thing. Uh, and then uh, fill in with uh, any number of ancillary, like, commissions for Patreon and stuff like that. Uh, so you'd, you'd put in Courting Disaster and uh, uh, Cape Carnival, which is kind of like my own version of Tales from the Con that I uh, continued on Patreon and, and stuff like that. Just a, a bunch of fill-in stuff that fills in all the cracks. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, teaching at uh, University of the Arts, I guess you have to include in there as well. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. So the the answer is how do you how do you manage multiple projects? The answer is poorly. <laughs> it's it it gets really confusing. In fact, it's it's one of the few places that I get a little friction from my Patreon backers because some of them have written me. And uh, said, and, and to be fair, this is only one. But you know how it is when you hear from that one, you you assume that they you immediately stand blow for it out to being ten thousand people have emailed me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but I've heard from one person that would really want me to live stream at the same time every week, uh, the same day every week. You know, at, at a schedule. Like if it's Tuesday at uh, eleven, uh, I'm doing a live stream, and I I'm like I can't 
do that. My life really doesn't work that way. Uh, and, and I wish I could tell, I wish I could give you some better advice than what I'm about to tell you. I can tell you that I fall into patterns, uh, based on deadlines and necessity. In other words, if I don't have the, the evil ink comic done by Friday, I'll be working on it over the weekend so that I can hand it off to Alex by Sunday night and give her time to color it so that it can be posted on Tuesday. I can tell you I'm, I'm working on the, you, and this usually happens, I'm working on the Thursday, which is the second half of that page, uh, tonight after I get done working on Comic Lab. I work on Comic Lab every Tuesday. Uh, I do cl uh, teaching classes every Monday. So there's certain things that you schedule because you got to schedule them there, right? There's certain things right. that have, yeah, you got to do that stuff. And then there's other things that could be done at, at other times. But what I like to do is I like to trade off on creative things and stuff that I call housekeeping. So like going through a comic lab podcast and putting in the show notes, right? Doesn't take me a whole lot of time, but it is something that, that I, I like to sit down and, and do to help keep the show healthy, right? That's not particularly creative. But if I do that at a certain point during the day, in the middle of a couple of creative things, then I can kind of let my brain rest a little bit and I can go, right. okay, now I'm doing really creative. Now I'm being more analytical and I can go switch back and forth between those two speeds. And that tends to help me out an awful lot uh, because sometimes when you're just doing only analytical, only analytical over and over, it gets a little bit. Uh, 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 tiring. And also the same ways, if you get, if you're, if you're going full bore on the creative side, at some point you do have to give yourself a break from that uh, because you're going to need to take a couple seconds and, and shift gears. What, what do you think about that? No, I, uh, this is a great question because I, I happen to be reading at this point uh, a book from Cal Newport called Deep Work. Are you familiar with this book, Brad? No, no. It talks about how uh, in an increasingly distracted world digitally, uh, how um, both creative people and administrators and CEOs and all sorts of people uh, tend to do more shallow work, in an increasingly large amount of shallow work, and not do the deep work that requires one hour, two hours, eight hours of pure concentration. Oh, and yeah. So the book is talking about how to rebalance your life, how to not let Twitter or email or tiny little administrative digital things distract you from the deep work. And so this is a great one because I'm, I'm in, uh, like you, I struggle with balancing multiple projects. So like Brad, I have Sheldon, which is an all ages comic strip. I have drive, which is a, um, a kind of teen and up, um, long form sci-fi story. I still have administrative work from Stripped, which is a documentary film I made four years ago, but which I still have to schedule screenings for around the country and around the world or sometimes uh, do problem solving for digital sales or this or that. Um, I have a Kickstarter for my next popular culture book that I'm that I'm going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. I have a Kickstarter for my Anatomy of Author books, which I'll be kickstarting in the fall, but I'm doing early planning on right now. Um, and then there's all the just administrative stuff that goes with being a cartoonist and running a corporation and all that stuff. You know, stuff with, with Beth as an employee. I have to deal with her payroll every once in a while and that kind of thing. Anyway, long story short is there's a lot of stuff on the fire. And the thing that got Brad and I into cartooning is to do the actual cartooning. And the, the balance yeah. is to not let all those little tiny annoying administrative digital tasks take away from the cartooning and it's a constant struggle and i will just admit publicly that i 
I probably fail more often than I succeed in, in juggling the deep work with the shallow work. Uh, and I also um, sometimes have problems with, um, with honoring every project with the time that it deserves in that moment. So sometimes I will be honoring Sheldon and cranking on Sheldon, but in, in the meantime, Drive is, is wallowing and, uh, or Stripped is wallowing or uh, a Kickstarter is wallowing. And so what I try to do is, uh, for whatever the day's work, usually on Mondays, Beth and I come into the studio and we talk about all the things. We take a half an hour and we jot down on a notepad all the things we want to have accomplished by the time that it's Friday at 5 p.m., right? And mm -hmm. um, so she and I both put in about a 40-hour week. She has a, a steady, you know, uh, 9 to 5, whereas my hours get weirder. Like, like you, Brad, I tend to work at weird hours if I have to f fill it in, that kind yeah. of thing. But anyway, we talked on a Monday... And I really try by the end of the week to have everything on that list done. But I try to honor where my passion and energy is feeling for that day. So if I'm drawing a drive and I'm saying, I'm not really enjoying this, I'm going to switch over to Sheldon. And then I get to work with pen and ink. And that's fun for me that day. And I'll, I'll do one or two of those. Or sometimes I'll be like, you know what? I just, my creativity is stalling. I just need a task right now that's like a rote physical job like something like excel yes. or yeah. you know answering emails or that kind of thing and you have to honor those moments like if you're not feeling it so on some respects even though i honor and co-sign with brad that it's hard to juggle multiple projects in some ways it's also a blessing because if my mind is not feeling project a i can jump over to project b and 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 tap into whatever energy i have for that at the moment you know brad like i'm sure you would agree that that happens with you too right yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, there's another thing that's an interesting, uh, uh, facet of this conversation is that, uh, I'm very, very close to hiring a, uh, assistant, uh, in the same way that you've hired Beth. And that's the first thing that I want that assistant to take is some of these shallow tasks so that I can have more time for the, for the deep tasks. And, uh, and, and I guess, Maybe what our advice to another cartoonist who uh, might be starting out or might be starting to build their career is that don't spread yourself into a whole lot of different things that is going right. to create a whole lot of shallow tasks. So if you're a web cartoonist right now and you're thinking, well, I want I should be doing a, you're looking around at other people that you like to emulate and you say, well, I should be doing a podcast. I should be. Uh, uh, doing a documentary film, I should be doing, uh, you know, all this other stuff, I should be writing my memoirs, uh, maybe keep yourself focused on uh, a smaller number of things so that you don't go so wide with your interests that you create all these small tasks. So every new thing that you add is going to add shallow tasks. Oh, boy, so is that true? Yeah. The, 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 the takeaway from this is to try to keep yourself focused and only add a new thing when you're ready to take on all the shallow tasks that come along with that, right? Yeah. And so maybe this person, it would also be helpful to uh, ask a question that they maybe implied but didn't answer or didn't ask outright, which is, Brad, when you, how do you manage multiple projects purely from a creative standpoint? Like you've got Evil Ink, you've got Not Suitable for Work, you've got uh, the other smaller comics that you do from time to time on Patreon. But how do you manage those creatively? Let's not talk about it from a time management standpoint, but like oh, when you get that's... a joke or an inspiration or you're out in public and you think of a funny idea, how do you know which one to apply it to? How do you know which one to give writing time to? How do you know which one to, to draw that day? How do you do it creatively? You listen to your body 
And and here's here's what I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like trying to teach a, co- a kindergartner when to know when to pee. This is amazing. <laughs> when you get that uh oh feeling, <laughs> start heading for the restroom. Cartooning is a lot like wetting your pants, and here's what we're trying to. <laughs> No. So here's the thing. We always say, uh, you know, uh, we we always take this attitude straight from Charles Schultz that uh, writer's block is for amateurs. And uh, that's all well and good. But it also belies uh, a, a reality of what we're doing. And that is we have to make creativity happen. We have to sit down and make it happen. So uh, I will absolutely have times when all right, right now it's time to write down or to sit down and write Evil Ink, even though I might not have anything ready to go. I'm going to try to make that happen. Right. Same thing for After Dark. Uh, same thing for any of those uh, places where you're trying to create. Uh, and that is you got to space those out and, and make sure that there's not a whole lot of overlap, because if your body is in in a certain way, and I don't know the right word for it, but you'll understand when I come around to it, if you're in that space where you have to make creativity happen, uh, then you've got to concentrate on one thing and really drill down on that and focus and 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 pay attention to that one thing. And then you've got to let yourself uh, 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 recover from that and go find something else to do, like maybe penciling or maybe answering emails or something like that. That's that's one state that I find myself in. Now, here's the other state. Sometimes, and this happens an awful lot on like a weekend morning, Saturday or Sunday, I'm the first one awake. I go downstairs, brew a pot of coffee. Uh, we always ha- usually have uh, those cinnamon rolls, you know, the Pillsbury cinnamon rolls you take out of the little canister. I, I put some cinnamon rolls in so, so that I, they're nice and hot when the kids wake up and stuff. And I've got the whole first floor to myself. Everybody else is asleep. And I'll usually take my sketchbook down. And every once in a while, everything is just flowing. It's like, and and it's a little bit like being kind of manic. You know, all of a sudden, everything is funny. Everything makes sense. Everything is leading to other thoughts. And you just realize your brain is very fertile right now. And you don't know why it happened that way. You're just happy that it's here again. Right, right. <laughs> if you knew how to flip that switch, right, you'd be right. flipping it all the time. But I, I don't I don't I don't know why it's like that. I'm just happy it's here. And and then you you open up your sketchbook and you write down as many things as you can while your brain is in that mode. So you might pop open uh, uh, the next phase of the Evil Link storyline, and then that might get as you're writing that that might give you some ideas for Cape Carnival, where you're doing superhero type jokes. That might give you some ideas for some of the inappropriate parts of those. Lead you right into Courting Disaster. I can use that in Courting Disaster. Now you're writing Courting Disaster stuff. And that uh, stuff leads you right into Evil Ink After Dark. And now you've come up with a great idea for a storyline for that. And you write until your hand is exhausted. And then you go reward yourself with a couple of cinnamon rolls and a nice uh, cup of coffee. And then when you try to come back to it, you realize that it's over. And uh, you're going to have to wait for that moment to come again. And who knows when it's going to come. But until that happens, you can always make creativity happen. But boy, that was fun while it lasted. Yeah, I think that I think that puts a good button on that one, Brad. I think it's um in, in some respects it's uh 
it's both a grace to have two projects that you can work on two or more because you can switch around. But it's also, like you said, it's a it's a, a balancing act and you have to be very careful of all the administrative and shallow tasks that are added on yeah. when you take on a new uh, a new project. But um, if, like Brad said to all the kindergartners out there, if you listen to your body and, and listen to your own scheduling, you'll know when, when it's right. And sometimes yep. even, when the, even when the scheduling is against you, uh, like with Drive, I was doing Sheldon seven days a week at that point and frankly didn't have time to do a new strip. But I knew yeah. I needed a new project. You know what I mean, Brad? I knew I needed yep. a new outlet for my creativity. And so I let myself have that. And sometimes you have to roll the dice. And it will it always succeed? No. And will there be times where you have to pull back on this project or that? Yes, absolutely. But uh, if you're if you're careful and cautious and and plan uh, well, I think it's okay to launch that second or third project and go from there. Yep. Yep. The main thing is listen. Take your brain at face value. I guess maybe is the way to say it. If you're not feeling it right now and you're trying and it's just not happening. Go, it, the beautiful thing about working multiple projects is, okay, I'm writing Evil Inc. and I put an hour into it and it's just not happening. Well, that's okay because I can go do this other thing now and maybe you know it, I, I can make things happen over there. And, and you can kind of respond to your own mental well-being's uh, 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 needs at that point. You know, you right. don't have to say, well, I've, I've got to write Evil Inc. right now. That's, that's the only thing I could possibly be doing. Nah, you could be doing this other thing. You can... You know, you you could be uh, uh, doing any kind of things, maybe spruce up your Patreon icons, whatever, that gets your mind off it for a little bit. And then when you come back to it, nine chances out of 10, you got stuff in your mental uh, bank ready to go. And I think uh, here's another little time before I put a, it's a button on my button, but here we go. I think if, <laughs> if a second or if multiple projects give you more joy than they give you anxiety, then you're doing fine. You'll figure it out. Yeah. But if the thought of a new project or the existence of a current second project is giving you more anxiety or sadness than it's giving you joy, then it's time to bail out on that second project idea. Uh, uh, yeah. Let your joy be a guide. And I think that's a version of what Brad was saying in terms of listening to your brain. If, if your passion and your joy is, no, I want to do both of these, that's okay. Listen to it uh, and, and honor it. And uh, if it's not working out, it doesn't work out. But... Uh, Passion and joy and 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 that is a great signal towards your ability to find the time for that project. Yes. All right. So let me ask you, Brad, the last question we have for the day from our Patreon $5 backer over at patreon.com slash comic lab. This is George Mackay who asks, hello again, Brad and Dave. My question to you guys is when giving out digital rewards like art or ebooks, et cetera, how do you protect your copyright and overall rights? Brad, this is, I think, an easy question for you to answer. How do you protect your copyrights and rights when you're giving out or even selling uh, digital uh, goods, whether it be art or eBooks and the like? Well, I put a copyright notation on it, and uh, and that's about as much as I do. <laughs> I put a, I put a copyright notice on it. Most of my eBooks and my e-comics, I put out DRM free, which means that the DRM stands for Digital Rights Management. Uh, so uh, basically, I send those out, and uh, I don't do anything to dissuade people from doing something untoward with it, uh, like like putting it up someplace else where it can be downloaded. Uh, but then again, I, I don't know that that is a huge problem for me. In other words, I, this is a question that comes up with people 
all the time, they, especially people who are just new and starting out in comics, and they're so terrified that someone's going to steal their comic. They're going to steal my idea. And, uh, and they get very wrapped up in, in copyright. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, it's, it's, I don't know that it's as big of a problem as you imagine it to be. Yeah. So I, I will put my stuff out. I'll, I'll, I'll send all my comics out, uh, you know, to Patreon backers, DRM free. I do subscribe and I do, uh, I, I, I endorse this heavily. It's called Blasty at Blasty.co. And that you can put your information into there and like you can upload your e-comic or, or the information on your e-comic and they will go out and uh, trowel the Internet and find these places where people might be posting that uh, at, so that people can download it. And then they file uh, takedown notices. And they've, if I understand the process right, they've actually got something worked out with Google so that if they alert Google to it, uh, Google won't return that page on a keyword search in Google. So, like, it's there, but people aren't going to find it because it won't come up in a search. I kind of want to return, folks, though, to your original thought, which is that um, it tends to be a question from younger cartoonists or starting out cartoonists because they are afraid that their one idea is the true gem and, and boy, the world is going to steal it. And I think yeah. 20 years or so of doing cartooning publicly, like Brad and I have done, you tend to get a more long view, which is, A, you have to fundamentally trust the people that like your work. Um, and that if something untoward does happen with a digital thing, if you just reach out to them and go, hey, you may not realize this, but that's uh, that you <laughs> you sharing it in this way with other people is uh, detrimental to the comic that you love. And they go, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, of course, I'm so sorry. Exactly. Um, and, and then in uh, other ways to, to look at this is that if someone starts stealing it, the reason why sites like you think we would notice are successful uh, is because uh, fandom can really rally in a way that even the, the legal system can't to shame people from stop selling and stop using uh, copyrighted items. And then in general, right. you have to ask yourself, if you are the sole distributor of your art online, how many people are going to some weird third-party site to get the thing that they know they could buy from you if they're your fan? So, right. uh, and then in general, know that the rights from point of creation are intrinsically tied to you as co with copyright. Even if you, for whatever silly reason, hadn't put a copyright notice on there, which you absolutely should, uh, there are sort of three levels of copyright protection. And the first one is just the mere moment of creation from your hand, uh, copyright is immediately assigned. And so, mm -hmm. uh, um, and again, Brad and I are not lawyers, but this is just sort of things we've picked up along the way. So if I have it wrong, I'm sure the next time our dear friend Katie Lane is on the show, she'll correct me. But um, uh, the, the generalized thing is that you can go through life being anxious about this stuff, or uh, you can do the best you can, which is to apply copyright, to let everybody know that it's for sale. Here's the clear vendor of my things from me for you. Please buy it from here. And then if any time you ever spot it, you can uh, either, if it's a fan, you politely let them know to take it down. If it's a third-party business that's clearly st ripping you off, you can file a C&D uh, through a lawyer. Um, and to Brad's uh, also point, you can use a site like Blasty, which can help you identify uh, third parties that are using it incorrectly. Yeah. But when you say, Brad, the big point is that uh, don't, don't come at this from a constant point of anxiety because you'll only make yourself uh, unhappy, I think. It's, it's one of the biggest things that I wish I could wave a magic wand and make disappear from young cartoonists' uh, worry list. 
because it really is a much smaller worry than they make it out to be. And by 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 making a lot of fear-based decisions, sometimes I worry that they're they're doing themselves more harm than good when they're when they're so wrapped up in worrying about copyright. Like we talked about a few episodes ago, like that I found that one really good single panel cartoonist and they were putting a watermark, a huge watermark in the center of all the stuff they were posting on social media where you would expect that they would want it to be shared so that uh, they can get more, uh, uh, you know, build audience and, and readership. Uh, and, and, and that's fear-based decision-making at its finest. Uh, and, and, and it's detrimental. And it's detrimental. Yeah. That's the key point. It's detrimental. I, that's the one thing I wish I could get people to calm down about a little bit. It's good to be vigilant. It's good to know that you've got copyright uh, law backing you if you do need to face somebody down. It's good to know that uh, you can do that. It's also important to know that sometimes, uh, and we've seen this happen with uh, t-shirt designs and things of that nature, sometimes you're going to just get the short end of the stick and that sucks. Uh, But then when that happens, it's also good to know that the only thing somebody can steal from you is what you did yesterday. And your power as a cartoonist is your ability to do what you're going to do tomorrow. Yep, absolutely. Well, I have two last thoughts uh, that I want to add on to Brad's excellent point, which is, um, one, just echoing Brad's point about sometimes it can be detrimental. And to your point, Brad, about the person that had both the watermark and the gigantic copyright notice underneath the comic, yeah, which yeah. which removes the joy, frankly, from the process of reading a comic. Ah, ah, uh, it really does. Another cartoonist that I know, and you perhaps know, Brad, was so concerned that someone was going to take his PDF ebooks and take them to China and print them that he offered the ebooks at a resolution that was so low that even the screen reading process was uncomfortable oh, and, and kind of squinty. God. And so yeah. what do you do? You're robbing Peter to pay Paul there in the sense that you're like, no one's going to steal my book because it's going to look so bad even in ebook format that no one will want to <laughs> steal it. You know, right. You're cutting your own throat. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to make I wanted to echo Brad's point about sometimes the the fear over copyright can be so detrimental that you actually are shooting yourself in the foot. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, it, it just it, it occurs to me that I can finally tell this story, which I kept quiet about for a long time because I I did not want to give uh, this group any uh, uh, notoriety whatsoever. But I can I can tell the story and it and I think it's got an interesting moral to the story and it comes from the NSFW community uh, first of all I'll just I'll just warn you Dave you might be you might be blushing in a, I'm, in a I'm tittering <laughs> no but it comes from the NSFW community specifically on Patreon and there was this group that was going in uh, creating a false account uh, so that they could access the the uh, NSFW content they'd scrape it all take it to this uh, hub site and post it so that people could go and look at it for free, right? They were scraping the Patreon content. This was happening and it was really causing a lot of uh, 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 anxiety in the NSFW community because it's like, well, you know, the next step is nobody's going to be our Patreon backer because they can get this stuff for free. And what's going to happen? And I got a number of private emails saying, what are we going to do about this? You, we got to do something about this. Uh, and I said, okay, I listen, I'm not crazy about it either. I, it makes me very upset, especially because they were so darn good at doing it. Right. I mean, I, I would, for a while, just to, just to watch, just to see, just to experiment, I would watch as soon as somebody uh, uh, joined my Patreon at the $10 level. 
you could find out very quickly if they were using a false email, they were, they were up to no good and you block them. And the whole process between getting the notification and blocking somebody, I got down to a, a, an art and I could do it within minutes. They'd still scrape tons of stuff from my site. They were so good at it. So I, uh, I said, here's, here's the deal. We got we to gotta think this through. Number one, we've alerted Patreon to it. And this is as much Patreon's problem as it is ours. This mm-hmm. is a problem they need to solve for their own reasons as much as for us. And they're on top of it. And I never heard, I don't have any direct uh, information. My spidey sense that it was that they did a very good job of applying pressure and then ways that they needed to apply pressure. But here's the other side of all that. This hub site, which had gotten very good at scraping content, was generating huge, gigantic server bills. Because it's all at some files, point, yeah. they've got to host all that content, right? And it was great because they host, they, they, from, from their standpoint, it was wonderful. They had all of this uh, content and a, a lot of people going to view that content. So they had server traffic as well. And, uh, you know, it was, here's the stuff that people are putting up on Patreon behind the paywall and you can see it here for free. Woohoo! It's free. And I said, they're going to collapse under their own weight because, and, and th- it was, it was delightful. This person would put out notices. Hey, my next server bill's coming up. If you want to yeah, contribute to the PayPal, you can, you can help me pay my server bills. And I'm looking at this going, you dummy. You've made your entire audience out of people who expressively don't want to pay for the content they're looking at. They're not going to contribute to your server bill. (laughs) And eventually it crumbled under its own weight and or Patreon got involved and did what they needed to do uh, very quietly. And like I said, I have no information on that. But uh, that's what tends to happen in these situations. <laughs> it, it crumbles under its own weight because their audience is made up of people who don't want to pay for the stuff that they're seeing because of whatever reason, entitlement, et cetera. Our audience is made out of people that want to support us because they like what we're doing. Our audience beats their audience every time. And that's the takeaway. That's the takeaway. You got to you got to trust in the thing that you've built, and you've built something uh, on things like Patreon and Kickstarter. You've built something with people that uh, get a special glee out of the fact that they're supporting you. Yep. Uh, that's a fan, that's very powerful thing to break. And yep. if you treat your fans right, uh, that's going to be something that's going to be powerful for a long time to come. Well, and uh, as one big capstone to this entire uh, conversation, I want to say that we all owe a collective debt to one cartoonist who made copyright happen for the first time ever in England in 1734. Do you know who that is, Brad? I'm going to say Thomas Nast. Nope. William Hogarth. Uh, Oh, oh, that's right. The Engraving Act of 1734 was what created copyright in England and then further on in the United States or the founding states uh, later on. Uh, So we all owe a huge debt of of gratitude gratitude (laughs) to uh, William Hogarth for getting that started, uh, which has expanded in both power and scope over the years. But uh, copyright uh, as we know it was... um, 
was a big part of his career, and we owe him a debt of thanks for that. So good job, William Hogarth. Well, and that was because of very similar issues, right? Was Absolutely. that a rake's progress that, that came out from yep. that? Yep, and, uh, and, and people a... were knocking off his engraving plates, and they were done pretty yeah. shittily. And uh, he instituted the act so that the, uh, the artist had the right to go after them and to uh, and to get their distribution uh, shut down. And so um, we all collectively owe him, uh, owe him a debt for that. It was great. Thank you, Mr. Hogarth. <laughs> well, Brad, all right. Now, as a special treat, we also have a, uh, a guest on the show. Um, so uh, let me uh, hit the little little bu- few buttons, a few knobs, little doodads here. And we're going to welcome on right. the show uh, Rob Salkowitz. Hey, if you're listening while you work, take a minute to stand and stretch. And while you're doing that, we'll tell you why you should join us on Patreon. Oh, when you do, you'll get hours and hours of podcasts that we've recorded just for backers. And exclusive Patreon posts that go even deeper on Comic Lab topics. And access to our exclusive Discord server, a thriving community of professional cartoonists. So you can support the show you love and get tons of actionable resources for your own cartooning. And listen, if you can't swing a pledge this month, no worries. You can still support the show by rating us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five star and a few kind words. That, and along with mentions on social media, is incredibly helpful. Now, let's talk comics. Well, Brad, this is kind of a fun moment. Uh, we've got a, a special guest with us today. Uh, Rob Salkowitz is joining us to talk about Kickstarter, about comic book shops, about Patreon, and about the changing nature of comics in the digital world. And uh, Rob, thank you very much for coming on the show. I, we appreciate that. Oh, great to be with you guys. So as, as a brief introduction for everyone, uh, Rob Selkowitz is an author and journalist focusing on the future of digital media. His 2012 book, Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture, looks at the future of entertainment through the lens of a show that uh, Brad and I know very, very well, San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> yeah. And you can find Rob's work and links to all of his new and uh, current projects at robsalkowitz.com. That's R-O-B-S-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-Z.com. And you can follow along him on Twitter at Rob Salk. Uh, at Rob Salk, R-O-B-S-A-L-K. Um, and Rob, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is I, I was really uh, uh, standing at attention when I saw your article in Forbes, uh, I think it's about two weeks back. It's a January 18th piece, and it was titled, As Comics Direct Market Struggles, A Surprising Publisher Rises. Uh, and for me, uh, the thing that particularly caught my eye is the drop in uh, sales volume via Diamond and comic book shops, while at the same time, uh, a massive growth for Kickstarter in the comics category. And I was wondering if you could give us the top line uh, points from that story in Forbes. Sure. So like a lot of people, I've been publicly and professionally worried about the health of the direct market since, the, you know, for the last couple of years, just because two things are happening. There's more comics being published than ever before for different audiences that may or may not even exist. And the conditions for retail in general, but for especially for small business retail like comic shops, even if you take away all of the craziness that's unique to the comic market, has been really dreadful. You've got competition from Amazon. You've got rising wages and rising rents in a lot of cities. You've got just a lot of secular forces that are making it hard for anybody's store-level retail to be doing very well. Well, so given the way that you had described in the article, the way comic book shops are getting hammered from multiple sides uh, as a business model, and after years of decline, 
are in your are your spidey senses tingling that maybe we really are reaching a breaking point for the vast majority of comic shops? Yeah, there's a there's a critical mass that if we fall below a certain number, and some people say it's 1,500 shops, and some people say it's you know 1,200 or something like that, but we're getting awfully close to it. And at that point, if the publishers don't have scale to get their product to market to their to their readers, then they can't function either. And then the creators don't get paid. And you know, it's like so it's so if the hose closes up or gets kinked up somewhere, you know, eventually everything backs up and you and you're not gonna, you know, it's not gonna make sense to publish these things, certainly for DC and Marvel and for the companies that own their IP and have other ways to monetize that, that's not as big of a problem. And for the for the publishers that specialize, you know, exclusively in the trade book side, like Ron and Quarterly or Fantagraphics or whatever, you know, they don't care about that either. But that's going to be doomsday for Image, IDW, uh, Dark Horse. That that tier that isn't big enough to control their fate and isn't in the book trade as significantly and isn't set up to do a model other than periodicals. Right. Well, let me turn now to uh, to a more bright note that both Brad and I uh, found really encouraging as Kickstarter users. That Kickstarter from 2017 to 2018 in the comics category is up 25 percent uh, year over year. Uh, and we've seen that both uh, in the in the numbers itself, but also anecdotally, just how many people uh, from either the image IDW world or the traditional webcomics world are finding increasing success and increasing reliance for their uh, continuing business model on Kickstarter. For Brad and I, there's only an upside uh, in our career and in, in careers similar to ours for Kickstarter um, in that we get to own and control and speak directly to our audiences. And the, the vast majority of the of the net goes into our bank accounts. And, and so all of that is good. Um, but my, uh, my follow-up thought from comic book shops, I had not thought that the, the, the real death knell in comic book shops closing would be, uh, IDW and image and boom and the mid tier, uh, publishers. But do you see them trying to dip a toe into that? I know I've seen, um, dark horse do it once, I think on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Have you seen Mm -hmm. image try it yet with Kickstarter? Uh, I don't know if Image does it, but the Image model is practically Kickstarter. I mean, the the creators bear a huge amount of responsibility for you know promoting and packaging their own book, and Image gives them a certain amount of air cover and access to the market and, and things like that. But that's um, it's actually closer to that. IDW with their publication Full Bleed. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. It's this really sort of deluxe hardcover. Um, comes out a few times a year. I was in I was in uh, issue number two, um, but it's a really cool thing, and it's like a deluxe book. They do a Kickstarter first, and then they they get their threshold number, and then they go to print with it. And you know that's fine. They they, they um, for it's a specialty publication, so it's not you know they're not doing that with Transformers, right? You know, they're doing it with their with, with a with a, a specialty property, right? Right. Um. What so what. Where where do your fears fall for those mid tier pu- publishers? And the only reason I keep going back to them is I, I personally um, I see a lot of stasis with DC and Marvel, as do I'm sure both of you. But um, with IDW and especially with Image, you see a, a tremendous amount of creative energy, risks being taken, um, new stories that none of us have heard before or seen before. And I personally will be sad to see that falter if the comic book shop model uh, falters. Um, and I'm I'm wondering what your fears would be for those mid-tier publishers if we do end up getting to a uh, a, a turning point, a tipping point rather, uh, for comic book shops, and they have to start going with some new model. What how how do you think they would navigate those new, new those new waters? So I'm not sure how they would navigate them, and I think that the, 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 for this reason that there's uh, 
reason to be concerned about it. The problem that they're facing is that they're in a sense a victim of their own success, that everything that you've said about the success of that model, and you've got you know Walking Dead and Saga and all of these great books that have come out as a result of this, has drawn a lot of interest from new publishers and stuff like that. So just in the last year or two, you've seen three or four or 10, I don't know, lots of these aspiring publishers that have the same model. It's like they've got a great roster of talent, of established people that, you know, names that you've heard of doing cool sounding projects. They've got different form factors. They've got high production values. They're being financed by unseen means of support, let's say. Like there's wealthy people that have always just wanted to be in the comics business that are bankrolling this stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, to see what happens with it. Um, So they're not as dependent on the, they don't you know live and die on, on, on this month's sales. So they're putting out these books. And if you're a comic store owner, you've got limited shelf space, you've got limited budget. You know that there's a built-in market for DC and Marvel, but you don't know about this other stuff. How do you, how do you place those orders when there's no established customer base for, you know, I'm talking about like uh Aftershock and Ahoy and TKO and you know uh, 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 Lionforge uh, to a certain de- degree. Um, some other companies that have been around, like Humanoids, is now doing a superhero line. Who's buying these books? And and so it's it's kind of crowding out because they're not the market for those comic stores are not bringing in new customers looking for that kind of content. That's cannibalizing the existing consumer base. Right. And I don't know about you, but I don't have an extra, you know, 50 or 60 bucks in my budget every month to try out, you know, wow, that looks interesting. I'll I'll take a flyer on that. You know, I don't think people's incomes, discretionary income is growing fast enough to absorb all of that. And I think that, you know, uh, image certainly, and, you know, also Dark Horse and IDW and some of those uh, boom have a first mover advantage because they've been in that space for a little bit longer. But it's that that one is setting off the alarm bells for me. And I know if you ask retailers, those are going to be the first books that they cut orders on when it's life or death. They're not going to cut, you know, the Hulk or Superman. But aren't we missing a really important player here uh, in this conversation? And that's Amazon.com. I mean, uh, from my personal experience, uh, I get very little through comic shops, but I do get a, a good de- a degree of traction through Amazon.com. I do a lot of sales there. Uh, how come we're not factoring Amazon into this conversation? Are you talking about physical product or digital? Physical. Yeah. I mean, every retailer is worried about Amazon for that reason. Amazon really isn't in the periodicals business, except on the digital side. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you can't be a box customer at Amazon and get you know, action comics monthly from them, as far as I know, um, unless you're getting it through Comixology or Kindle or something. But um, certainly for the trade books, yeah, I mean, who's the competition? Barnes and Noble? I mean, so they're a major player in the trade side of the business. Mm-hmm. But that's a completely, if you look at the numbers there, it's such a completely different picture. That's where you're serving young readers and manga. And uh, that's where. If your image series can hold out long enough to finish your story arc, you can collect the trade and put it in the trade channel, and then you will sell. You'll sell through Amazon or you'll sell through you know independent bookstores, that sort of thing. So it's kind of a different a different world. Brad, what you're getting at though is that I guess what you're asking: uh, Do we really need to save comic book shops? Is that the that's the core? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, we we talked about this back on Web Comics Weekly, which was a good 10, 12 years ago where we said, you know, the position this is headed towards is this is going to become 
your your flappies are going to become digitals and then the digitals uh, will get collected into trades and you're going to buy those on Amazon and that's going to be the new comics market right I, I mean I guess the question is how long can you as a creator wait for your paycheck for that to happen I mean I have a, I have a friend here in Seattle um, acclaimed independent comic artist named uh, David Lasky did a great book a couple of years ago uh, on the Carter family the the country music uh, family mm-hmm. he got a he got a contract with Abrams books great publisher he got an advance him and his collaborator they worked on the book for like a year and a half and the advance money ran out and they weren't done with the book yet and so they he had to like take side jobs and like work at a bakery and you know like all of this stuff because there was no monthly income because he wasn't doing floppy issues that led up to a trade you know how many publishers can afford to advance a creative team the amount of money that it actually takes to get this project done and then uh, deliver that and then get the kind of numbers on the trade side that you would expect. It's uh, as risky as the periodicals business is, that side of the business is, is more risk than, than I think the publishers want to deal with. But that's a conversation that talks about how the publishing system has its own faults. I mean, from Dave and I, our standpoint, we talked about this a couple episodes ago. Uh, from our aspect, it's like, all right, so that that book maybe isn't, uh, or that process of, of going through a publisher and getting an advance, that's also going away and is being replaced by building your own brand, uh, uh, d- developing your month-to-month uh, uh, income on Patreon, uh, getting that book read, you know, at, using Patreon to get you month-to-month on your project. Then when you have enough stuff to collect into a trade, go into Kickstarter, uh, getting your funds there, self-publishing and selling to Amazon. All what you're actually saying is all of this is maybe going away in favor of independent artists doing exactly that, uh, uh, building the, their brands, uh, uh, doing Patreons for their monthly uh, creations, doing Kickstarter for project-based, and then putting it up on Amazon to sell. Uh, yeah, I think that that's definitely happening. The problem with that is it is much less predictable and it's much harder to scale. That yeah, if you're Spike Trotman and you can and you can raise a million bucks for your projects and stuff like that, that's fantastic and that's that's awesome and that makes it look like the model works. Um, what I'm seeing is that there's a real ceiling with Kickstarter that you can get to a certain point where it's sustainable in a sort of artisanal way for you to be doing your projects, connect with your fans, sell your thing, move on to the next thing. Um, if you want to get that beyond a certain point and get your work into, uh, you know, into a trade book catalog or into a, um, you know, into diamond there, Kickstarter doesn't give, doesn't give you that. Wait, wait, wait. Why do I want to do either of those? None of those matter. Getting into a diamond means I get into a comic book shop. We just got spent the last 15 minutes talking about how useless that is. Uh, Getting into a trade book shop means I'm into Barnes and Noble stores. I don't care about that either. The the money is on Amazon. <laughs> the money is independent. None of those things you said matter. Well, maybe not. I mean, may- maybe they don't matter to you. To some people, they. Uh, and also, if you have larger ambitions for your intellectual property, like if you want to, if you want to get picked up in other media, if you want to do merchandising, not everybody does, and that's fine. I mean, that's not, you know, that that a lot of people are are happy and consider it successful to just be doing their work month after month. And that's great. And, and, and more power to them. 
um, then there's a, <laughs> there's another tier that wants to connect with a bigger audience. But uh, but I, I tell you? there's a there's a real problem with what you're saying there is because you say that in order for me to get to the next level. I've got to have my stuff appearing in bookstores and comic shops after you just got done saying that there's no business to be had there. And uh, I'm telling you from firsthand experience, I'm doing great. And and I'm not artisanal. I'm doing just fine. And I'm scaling just fine. And I'm not in Spike Troutman's league by any respect. But there's an uh, there, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm supposed to go to become bigger uh, because I don't know. I don't know how it is I become big uh, under the uh, uh, the framework that you just described. Uh, so, OK, so to try to thread the needle between the two of you discussion wise. So I think what Brad's getting at is uh, if you're already making, uh, you know, 80 to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year as a cartoonist between Patreon and Kickstarter. Yes. Uh, what advantage is it to try to break into a system that's actively dwindling um, aside from trades for kids with uh with a dog man and smile and amulet and that sort of stuff. Um, is, is there still an advantage for the average cartoonist to try to pursue that route? And we, he and I would argue that it probably increasingly less and less and less to the point now of, of being almost marginally small chances of, of making that work. Whereas the growth rate on Patreon, the growth rate on Kickstarter has been year over year, better and better and better. Um, so isn't that the better path then for comics going forward? I mean, why try to save a business that was set up in the 30s, 40s, 50s to distribute floppies, you know, at, at nickel, dime, and quarter prices when uh, that's clearly no longer working yeah. for the average cartoonist. So I think that's, that's where we're trying to thread the needle here is, is um, why, why even try to go into comic book shops? Why even try to go through Diamond? Why even try to go through uh, those traditional systems when they're so clearly dying on the vine and um, the signs are pointing increasingly towards Kickstarter and Patreon? Yeah. Do I summarize you right, Brad? Yeah, that, you, you you put that much better than I did. <laughs> I think the I think the future of the business that you're describing absolutely is the future. That the 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 old model is dying. The problem is that you've got you know if you can picture you know like these two cliffs of you know like the past of the industry and the future of the industry and what's connecting them is this like little tiny rope bridge that we all have to get across safely you know and it's like the the threads are fraying and the and the planks are falling down into the cliff and stuff like that and we all have to sort of make it over to the other side um and some some people have made it and some people haven't one thing that i think that the established publishing business does right now is it confers some credibility and it allows you to build a fan base from which you can then transition more successfully into a you know into a into a Patreon um, Kickstarter fan funded model. You can't do that unless you have a fan base, and you can't build a fan base very well. Um, you know, and again, there's the exceptions that prove the rule. There's like Noel Stevenson. And hold these on, people. hold on. Finish that sentence. You can't build a fan base. How? I built a great fan base self publishing. I didn't need Marvel. Didn't need D- DC. I had a website. I published. I did good stuff. I, I gathered a readership and I went on from there. I didn't need any of that stuff that you're describing. I, I And I built a perfectly stable bridge, no frayed threads, <laughs> no wood falling off. Uh, yeah. So I think, I think to, to Rob, to, to argue a different point. So one, yeah. one of the things that Brad and I have long been holding is that uh, every different stage for the history of comics has created, not necessarily created, but has um uh, has, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That a, that a different type of cartoonist has risen to the occasion for each stage of comics publishing. Um, and that uh, when newspaper syndication was really working, and it's not really anymore, when it was really working, a certain kind of cartoonist rose to the fore and knew how to write family-friendly and knew how to write all ages 
didn't really have their hands on the business at all and uh, let a syndicate take care of it. And when Marvel and DC were really kicking, someone really figured out that, okay, uh, you know, I, I know how to write for capes and cowls and I can do that and go great. And, all. and then a different kind of cartoonist would figure out the New Yorker and, and Esquire market and that kind of thing. And I think a big part of Brad and I's argument is that a new kind of cartoonist has to rise to the occasion now and they have to be increasingly entrepreneurial. They have to run their own business. And frankly, uh, that there is almost a disadvantage to going with publishers now in that you can build a really stable, really happy life, but you have to wear many hats and maybe that's okay uh, going forward. Yeah. And if you have that combination of skills, more power to you. I mean, that's terrific. And I'm glad to hear that you're successful with that and that, you know, that that in every generation, there's a few people that pick that lock and, and figure out uh, how to do it. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Dennis Kitchen, you know, did that in the the underground era in the in the 1960s when there was a very specific strategy that you could use to to sell sell those kind of comics. Right, absolutely, yeah. The the hate the hate Ashbury crowd had a very specific skill set too. Yeah, exactly. But 99 percent, not I, I don't know, I, but it seems to me that in my personal experience that it's an unusual combination to have both the the business acumen and the creative ability, and that's. Those people that have those two things together, I bow down. I mean, that's 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 incredibly uh, impressive and bodes well for your success. A lot of artists just want to be artists. A lot of a lot of artists don't want to deal with this stuff. And there's a division of labor, for better or worse. If I said that it was less rare than you think, and and you might be not looking in the right places, would that would that be? Uh, would that make sense? Of course. I, 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 I would love to be wrong about that. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, we, we, no, nobody can know everybody and everything. So yeah, no, the, right, the, right. the good news is here, both to both of you, Brad and Rob, I think the good news is that Kickstarter is proving the point is that most cartoonists, cartoonists, uh, because we're, we're basically seeing an increasingly, uh, it may not be as deep, but an increasingly wide pool that allows more cartoonists to dive in. And uh, that 25% growth rate year over year for Kickstarter, for an already large sum of money coming in, um, that only bodes better and better as a, a younger generation comes on board with this. The, be the better number from Kickstarter is not that 25% growth rate. It's the 75% project funded rate for comic projects. 75%, right. three out of four. That's really, really good. And it's been getting better every year because, you know, to Brad's point, People are getting better at this. I think they're recognizing that you need those skills and you can't just have one, and that's good. I, I, you know, legacy talent, people that have been in the business for a little while, the pains of adjustment are are there. But if you're brand new coming into it, and that's the cost of entry, that's the ante at the table, then fine. If you're in it, then you've got that. That's great. Yeah, I, it's it's a little bit like uh, to, to Brad in my perspective, it's a little bit like when the the generation that didn't want to ever adapt to digital uh, had to adapt to digital. Like, like I don't want to use Photoshop. I don't want to learn how to scan my comics. I want to hand it to a, a photographer and they'll they'll print it up for the next Marvel issue and that kind of thing. And then there was a really painful transition period. But then everybody just had to assume, okay, the skill set that I'm going to have to absorb is Photoshop or Adobe and that kind of thing. And I think what Brad and my point is for a lot of cartoonists is that. The writing is so clearly on the wall here, both for traditional comic book shops uh, and for Diamond in general as a monopoly, that uh, a really a new skill set like those those uh, cartoonists that had to adopt to, to digital is that the new skill set is you have to adopt an entrepreneurial uh, standpoint and put on that hat and learn the business side of things. Or else you will be one of those people who's incredibly talented at comics, but can't make a career of it because it's required mm -hmm. in this age going forward, I think. 
and I just I I'm afraid that that is more selective and a higher threshold than it's been in the past. And one of the great things about comics is that it's so accessible and that, you know, basically, you know, all you need is a pencil and paper and you can be a, a visual storyteller if you have a strong enough idea and creative view and to layer on a bunch of additional skills that used to be somebody else's problem used to be, you know, like there are people that are born salespeople that don't have a creative bone in their body. And it's too bad that we, that the new way isn't, figuring out a way to incorporate those kind of skills in the same way that the old model did. Right. No, I get what you're saying, because in the way that I'm advocating it, it would be really hard for Bill Watterson to make a career. I get that. But um, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is it's the, I, I, Brad and I really at the gut level think that it's the intuitive truth that that's what's going to have to happen. And are we going to lose cartoonists that it would otherwise be amazing? Absolutely. But I think um, that the, this, this coming, and, and frankly, it's already here for a lot of people, this coming age of, of how cartoons and comics are going to get out to people uh, is really going to require cartoonists to say, no, I can't just throw my hands over my ears and say, I don't want to think about business. You have to take uh, control of your business. Um, anyway, any, any other last thoughts, Brad, that you wanted to, to get in no, before I, we... I love this topic. This is, this is fantastic. And thank you so much, Rob, for spending some time with us. Yeah, I, Rob, I really want to, th- really want to thank you yeah. for coming in. This was really nice of you. And uh, again, uh, Rob's articles are both continuing on, uh, on Forbes. He's got uh, another great one on Patreon that you should definitely tap, check out. But uh, just a reminder again, for if you want to read more of Rob's current projects and, and check out his past work, uh, that's at robsalkowitz.com. And then you can catch up with them on Twitter at R-O-B-S-A-L-K at Rob Salk. Uh, and uh, Rob, thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Well, all right, Brad, that uh, that wraps it for the show this week. And how nice yes. that we were able to switch back to our normal roles there, <laughs> where you become the hothead. Thank goodness, the world, we've set the world back on its proper axis. All is right, all is right again, as I'm, the, as I'm the calm peacemaker and Brad setting fire to people's houses. <laughs> and I'm over here having heart palpitations. <laughs> and on that note, you've been listening to Comic Lab, the show about making GD comics and making a GD living from comics. Your hosts have been the ever-angry Brad Geiger, the editor of <laughs> webcomics.com and cartoonist of Evil Inc. at evil-comic.com and the calming zen-like Dave Kellett, co-director of Stripped and cartoonist of Sheldon at sheldoncomics.com and Drive at drivecomic.com And the Comic Lab theme song is used with permission from Andy Creighton at theworldrecord.net And this episode and all episodes was edited by Matt Woodard of Woodsong Productions at www.woodsong.media. Comic Lab is made possible by your support at patreon.com slash comic lab, so we'll go ahead and say that twice. Patreon.com slash comic lab. Ling, ling, ling. Oh, hello, sir. Welcome to Ko-Fi. Did you come in to make a deposit? <laughs> sir, welcome to Ko-Fi, one of the best-named uh, cooperative banks in all of Kansas. Come on into Ko-Fi. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking for a place to put my Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, well, take a piece of hard candy. We'll have a seat. We'll be One of our bankers will be right with you. I'm sorry. Here at Ko-Fi, we only use BitCob. <laughs>